he was uh, he had to give a talk as a junior monk in Thai to the the uh, laity in, in Wapapong in Thailand. So he said he prepared this really clever talk, all kinds of clever concepts and lists and da 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 da. And he gave an hour's talk. He thought, he thought it was a good talk. Ajahn Shah said, don't ever do that again. <laughs> Disappointing. Isn't it? And then he once, on the, on the uh, observance days, on the lunar quarters, we have uh, in Thailand, we sit up till, till four in the morning, just sit through the night and then go an alms round. In the monastery here, we just sit up to 12, but on these all-night sittings, uh, there'd be uh, maybe a hundred lay people who would, uh, most of them um, farming women who were really good meditators, really strong, and several monks would give talks through the night. So the talks might go from, there'd be the puja from maybe nine o'clock till two o'clock, right through the night. So if you got the graveyard shift. So Lompa Cha said to Ajahn Sumedho, Sumedho, give a talk. So he was still, he wasn't very senior. He had to give a talk in time. He talked for 45 minutes. Stopped, started to get off of the, the Dharma seat and Lompa Cha said, keep going. Talked for another 45 minutes, stopped, tried to get down, Lompacha said, keep going. By the time he finished, there were two people in the hall. <laughs> and he said, he wasn't bothered if people left the talk. <laughs> Interesting lessons. Consider how, how uh, what are the causes of peace? Let's just think about that. Uh, I came into the meditation hall. I had had a long walk, so it was warm. I felt the room was warm. The, the outfit I wear is warm. It's not like I can take my sweater off. I'm sort of just incarcerated in this thing. So it's hot, right? And uh, set the clock for 45 minutes. Within two minutes, I regret that. <laughs> I wish it wasn't so. And so I determined to sit there for 45 minutes and, and the body feels hot and sweaty. So hot and sweaty is unpleasant, right? And, and, and it's a strong sense experience. And I feel it, and it's unpleasant. So the usual way of functioning with the unpleasant is to become comfortable, which is all right, it's not immoral, not against the precepts. But in this case, I, I choose not to do that, or I can't do that, or whatever. So I observe the feeling of unpleasantness. And that's uncomfortable. It's, it makes me a bit restless. The mind might think about time, like this was a mistake, <laughs> or whatever. And so there's the restlessness and discomfort of not getting what I want. But then, you know, through experience... Just, just observing the, the the way it is now, I don't seek a compensation. 
I don't seek uh, something to replace the unpleasant because I know it's not going to hurt me. If it's going to hurt me, I get out of there. I just look at, I just allow the unpleasant to be as it is. And of course, the unpleasant um, can only really stay very unpleasant if I think about it. If I keep thinking it's unpleasant, it's unpleasant, unless it's painful and hurtful, sure. But the unpleasant then becomes neutral. It's just heat. It's just sweaty and so on. And, and, and then in that sense of neutrality, you stay with it and don't fall asleep. Don't let the mind wander off, just be with that. And eventually the mind no longer seeks a replacement. It no longer seeks another kind of sense experience. It's okay with, with this experience, the way it is. And the mind has peace. And that, so the peace comes about, what are the causes of peace? They come about through the acceptance of the way things are mindfulness of the way things are, and really noticing this, this, this very strong tendency we have from, you know, as children, to seek the pleasant and try to get un- rid of the unpleasant. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. So when, it, when, a, when a child feels, it starts to cry, the mom tries to distract it, which is a good thing that, you know, the child doesn't really understand, perhaps, or whatever. Um, so we, we, you know, we develop habits that way, there's a very good, which I've often used, a very good reformulation of the Four Noble Truths by uh, a teacher called Lumpo Dun, who was contemporary to Ajahn Chah. And uh, some of you know this one, but Lumpo Dun was an interesting monk. He was an urban monk in a city in Bangkok, uh, not in Bangkok, in, North, in central Thailand, a very busy monastery. And Thai monasteries are urban and uh, rural monasteries, urban monasteries are cultural centers. And he was in a very prestigious urban monastery, so it can be like a constant festival in those places. They're very noisy, there's all, pilgrims coming, people selling all kinds of Buddhist knickknacks and food and lottery numbers, and like it's all happening. Horoscopes, and like it's, it, it, it's very rich in culture. Most Western monks like run away as soon as they see those places because they want quiet and tranquility. But Longpaul Dun was asked by his preceptor to be the abbot, and he was the abbot there for 40 years. And um, he didn't teach much, but he was a very, very wise being, much respected. And, and uh, the, 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 his rephrasing of the Four Noble Truths, so most of you are familiar with the Four Noble Truths. There's suffering, the cause, the cessation and the path, right? The suffering has to be understood, the cause has to be abandoned, the end of suffering has to be realized, the path has to be developed. So that's the usual uh, Dhammachaka formulation. And this, this way he said, the mind sent outside is the cause, the result of the mind sent outside is suffering. The mind knowing the mind is the path, and the result of the mind, knowing the mind, is the end of suffering. So he puts, he puts one and two and two and one, three and four and four and three. So the mind sent outside is the cause. So I'm sitting here and feeling hot and sweaty, right? And the unpleasantness of that draws my attention. I'm drawn to the unpleasantness of it because I'm a desire being. 
or this body is a desire body, so that the attention is drawn out to that, so the mind sent outside. So you'd think, well, well, my body's inside, but it's still an object of awareness, right? If you get if you get that idea, which I've been trying to get across, so the mind sent outside goes out into the into the sweatiness or whatever, and, and starts to figure out how to get away from this unpleasantness. The mind sent outside is the cause, and the result of the mind sent outside is suffering. Some suffering. It's not, you know, it's. I won't. I won't. I don't need therapy for this or something. Right? It's just the, the existential problem of discontent. And then I then I awaken to that. I notice. Oh, discomfort is this way. It feels this way. Mind knowing the mind. That's the path. And the result of the mind knowing the mind is the end of suffering. There's no suffering. Still hot and sweaty in there, but there's no suffering. Simple, huh? <laughs> I'd just do it. <laughs> and and that's I think, you know, that basically what we're, we're what we're doing. Very, very simple. But our 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 patterns of of discontent are, are deeply embedded. You know, we have to give ourselves a break around that. They're deeply they're deeply conditioned. Who wants to suffer? Who wants to, to get angry or fearful or, or worried or whatever? So so one needs a sort of compassionate uh, patience with the with the very real predicament of being a human being in a, in a body with uh, cultural conditioning, familial conditioning, social conditioning, etc., etc. But the idea in Buddhism is 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 always the the practices of Buddhism are always based on right understanding. And once you once you once you have a sense of what we're doing. And, and you have confidence in that, then that leads to right thought or right intention. Right, you, you're aiming your life now in a way which is according to right understanding. Hmm? So the mind sent outside. Uh, let's say you, 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 you're watching the breath, and the breath is, unless you're, you're very adept at absorbing into the breath, the breath is boring, or it's at least neutral, right? And then you get a brilliant idea how to make a box joint jig. It's, it's always brilliant. My ideas are only brilliant. Right? And what it is, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's exciting. It's a possibility. Or vice versa, you get you get a, 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 a kind of recollection that you, you're going to have to do something difficult next week. So that's worrisome. Something might go wrong. It's fearful. And so attention then is drawn out, the mind going out, goes out into the exciting possibility, to the interesting project, to the worrisome possibility. The mind sent outside is the cause, and the result of the mind sent outside is suffering. So I spin around and worry... Or I just create the most fantastic box joints in the world, and then the bell rings, etc., etc. So the mind sent outside is the cause. The result of the mind inside is suffering. And then at some point, again, I, and that's why I keep emphasizing, notice the end of thought. Someone coughs, I say something, you have a twitch in the, in the leg, and you notice you're fantasizing, you're caught up in worry, um, you're, you're projecting some, whatever it is, you have some memory patterns, that's the mind knowing the mind. That's it, you're back home. 
And that moment is so very important, so very important. The third noble truth in the um, usual formulation is the realization of cessation. And that sounds pretty highfalutin. The cessation, that means like I'm going to get to some kind of point where I'm just zapped out into peace and it's never, <coughs> nothing's ever going to happen. It sounds so very final and absolute. But actually, actually, in that moment when you've awoken to the fact that you think that's the ceasing of a sense of self, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's very immediate. But we don't appreciate that. We, we, we kind of jump into an analysis that we shouldn't be thinking so much or we, we grab our object of meditation in a very fierce, fierce and kind of forceful way. So that's why I, I think I emphasize so much the sense of, of the, the end of something, the ceasing of thought, the end of the drama, rather than trying to get rid of the drama. Huh? And, and that, that little gap seems, it's kind of infinitesimal in the beginning. It seems like nothing, ho-hum, boring, blah. But it, it, it opens into plenitude. It opens into vast space. If if you trust and have the patience in that, because the mind knows the mind. The mind knows the mind. So the question for each of us is, first of all, does that make sense? Is that kind of a, a reasonable kind of a thing? Uh, if not, where does your, you know, what is your sense of right understanding? What is the work we do? And how do we do this work? Why do we do this work? Where are we coming at it from? Anyway, that's what works for me. Um, and, and so then the training becomes, like we were, I was talking with Derek uh, about like right effort. You know, how, what is the balance around right effort? For me, it's returning to that. It's like coming home, right? Uh, which, isn't a, which isn't an effort to become someone who never thinks or become someone who doesn't have any kind of emotional content or doesn't have any, any, any negativity. That would not be coming home, that would be beating up. So, you know, it would be something that rejecting in some way. So, Long Paul line, it all belongs. I think it's one of the best lines he's got. Um, just as an aside, the, uh, the Thai ambassador to Ottawa, who's very good friends of ours, he was, uh, he became, the, he's just now the Thai ambassador to Washington. And the Thai ambassador to Washington is with us now in Ottawa. And he had to, he had to present his documents to President Obama, uh, which, is, which is diplomatic protocol. And he was trying to figure out what he could give President Obama. So he found a book, uh, something about a day, a, a significant day in the life of, uh, in the presidency of, of Kennedy, of President Kennedy. And he, and he made a bookmark. And on that bookmark, he had a picture of, of uh, President Obama with a Thai monk in a, in a big temple in Bangkok, in a big reclining Buddha, just to remind him of his visit to Thailand. And the other side of the bookmark, he had a picture of Ajahn Sumedho. Oh, that's neat. And underneath it was Ajahn Sumedho's biography, which is, which is, a, which is quite impressive that he's a He's an undergrad from Seattle. He was in the Korean War as a medic in the Navy. He was a graduate from UCLA, and then he was in the Peace Corps, and then he's a monk in Thailand. And he put that on. And on, on, underneath it, he put this line, uh, Sumedho's famous line, past is a memory, futures are known, now is the knowing, which is one of Ajahn Sumedho's great lines. So Mr. Obama has that somewhere. 
<laughs> and actually, I had a friend, I told that to a friend, and she looked it up on Google, and, that, and, and the ambassador's speech to uh, President Obama is actually somewhere in, in the Google archives. So I, I thought it's kind of cool. Anyway, well, uh, some of those lines, I think also one, that, that line is very significant for me. Past is a memory, future is unknown, now is the knowing. It's a very powerful line. But also that, that simple line that it all belongs. It's really quite, quite beautiful. It all belongs. So whatever arises in conscious experience, it, it belongs. It's a part of nature. It might not be pretty, beautiful, and, and uh, what you want, but it still belongs, doesn't it? It all belongs. And that, and that openness of, of attention and attitude uh, is the awakened mind. So for me, right effort is returning to that. Returning to the awakened mind, rather than being someone who is in some way saintly and perfected. Which ain't going to happen. <laughs> you know? So that's much easier to do. If you're trying to be perfect, good luck. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not possible. Because, because we, are, we are beings who have nervous systems, and we have cultural conditioning, and we have gender conditioning, we have all kinds of stuff. So it's okay to feel disgruntled, and it's okay to feel self-doubt, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But the mind sent outside is the cause. But the mind knowing the mind is the end of suffering. So this, this capacity to continually awaken to the way things are is the basis of my training and, and my, my insights and so on. And, I, and, and then in those areas in my own practice where... Um, that capacity to know the way things are gets somehow uh, lost. Those are the places I have to work real hard. And what is the working real hard? It's like just understanding why does the why does attention get preoccupied so much with that particular pattern, that particular type of emotion? So maybe someone says something to me, or something happens in the monastery, and, and something gets triggered, and I just like well, I get I get very triggered by. Um, if, if, if someone says to me something about someone else and they're trying to manipulate me I don't do well <laughs> I don't react well at all uh, especially if I get fooled if I get fooled I really I really, uh, I don't lose the plot but various devious thoughts come into my mind <laughs> so that's, a, that's, a, that's an area where the sense of awakening is 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 uh, gets kind of lost. So that's okay. That's where I need to make effort. I need to make effort in those human situations where I become too empathetic or or whatever it is. And so I I, I kind of what do I do? I program my mind. Don't know. I, I suggest to myself that very well. Be careful there. Be careful of speech. Be awake to your emotions. Know what's going on. And I get better and better in those areas. We all do, don't we? We all, that's kind of growing up, I suppose, growing up. But it's the same practice, it's the same practice of awakening, awakening to the way things are. And if we, if we, if we see that, that that way of knowing the way things are, it keeps opening up into, into the silent possibility of deep, deep compassion. I mean, it's always there. And, and the objects that we get caught up to are preventing us. We're not available. So again, I like to use that idea of preoccupation and availability. Those are two words. You know, when I'm preoccupied with the objects of my experiences, then I'm not available. 
So that's another word I use. As you know, people have done retreats with me. I'll just pop that word in. Availability. An interesting word. Availability. And then, then you know, you're not you're not going anywhere because you're available. And then, and then the mystery of the consciousness or the mystery of silence has a chance to to sort of be known. But if I'm always preoccupied with thoughts and emotions and, and, and the objects of sense experience, then that truly religious or spiritual possibility isn't available to me. That makes sense. Any any thoughts around that one? Questions or any questions in general about your own practice? Yeah, yes, please. Um, I have a question about something you said about physical pain. Yes. I'm assuming that so you, you seem like you're making an exception uh, for physical pain and the attention's ability to transform that experience into different peace aspects. Yeah. So is it possible that with greater consciousness or um, concentration, physical pain can be broken down as well? Physical pain, if you have enough clarity of non-grasping, physical pain uh, can be non-suffering. So like, say, Ajahn Sumedho does dentistry without anesthesia. And he uses the sound of silence as a practice to do that. Right? I don't. Give me the morph. <laughs> But, so, certainly, you know, the, the, you, you can see it in degrees, can't you? You can see in meditation that you feel discomfort, and you can be with that discomfort, and it's not suffering. And then there comes a degree where now you're reacting. Now you're clenching up. Now you're getting tight. Now you're thinking about time. And stretching those boundaries is a practice. It's a, pra- it's a practice. But stretching them and not just being willful is hard. So what I always, like as a young monk, I found that I stretched those boundaries just through pure willpower. And that always was very destructive because it, I actually wrecked my knees and so on at times. So stretching the boundaries with emptiness, non-grasping, is different to stretching the boundaries. I just have to sit and bear with the pain. So I think if, if you, like people have chronic pain, and people, it's very difficult. Chronic pain is very difficult. But most of the ones that I know that meditate is they really learn how to peacefully coexist with chronic pain. They have their ways of doing it. And yet they still treat it. Uh, I know a woman has fibromyalgia and she, she has a lot of chronic pain. But she also, you know, she goes swimming and she, she has a good diet and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, and as, you know, the dying process, there must be a tremendous amount of possibly physical pain. We have pain, killers, and so on. So it's a, I think it's an important way to develop awareness. As long as it's not, it, as long as it doesn't become something, well, I have to push through this pain. Or if I was a really good meditator, I wouldn't react in this way. Those kind of ultimatums to oneself are very, uh, I think, counterproductive. But if it's seen as, a, as an exploration of pain and what can be the mindf- mindfulness around pain, then I think it's fruitful, yeah. Ajahn Sumedho, you know, I don't know if you've read any of his work, he uses uh, the sound of silence, which is a, when, you, when, you, when, when the sense of self drops away 
and you get a sense of the mind being empty of the sense of self. There's a kind of spaciousness and vastness, and, and within that, quite often people notice a kind of um, high-pitched electronic sound. And so he uses that very much with things like pain, or, or and, and, and he abides as that, and then the pain manifests in whatever it meant and then ceases again. There are degrees to, that, that, you know, our skill around that and so on. But the, so the, the good side is that you learn how to be at peace with all conditions, which is very powerful. Now, some teachers will, will, will say, you know, like some of the really more fierce teachers in Thailand will just say, sit through the pain. And just keep sitting through the pain. Keep sitting through the pain. And um, that didn't work for me. Certainly, I read about it and I tried it. But it, it, to me, it was just, um, it, it was too willful. It wasn't really, uh, and I needed to be, I, had, I needed more. The willful, I had the, the kind of willful energy, I could do that, but I couldn't, I couldn't be compassionate, couldn't be forgiving. So that was counterproductive for, for me. Others, you know, for others, it really, really works. So then I know one, sh- one French monk, he just sat through the pain, through the night in his mind, got really, really bright and clear and so on. Um, so I've, I've always been wary of extremes in, when I read about teachers because they, you know, some teachers just have such a powerful part of me. They, they, can, they can do things like that skillfully. And then I try it as a kind of garden variety monk, right? Just try, <laughs> trying to do it. And, and, I, and I come at it from an ideal. You know what a good monk is and a strong monk is. And, then I, and I'm not really mindful. So I found in my own practice... I had to be much more gentle, much more forgiving, much more caring, much more heart. That gives me better results for me. Yeah? The lady behind there, yeah? I had a similar question, but with respect to, I guess, not physical pain, but emotional pain. Mm-hmm. Very difficult. I think right speech comes from, a lot of right speech comes from wrong speech. <laughs> Correct? You know, you put your foot in it again. And you think, oh, that didn't work. So a lot of, like in Thai, they say, pit pin crew, mistake is teacher. So, so there's that part of, I should say something, which one regrets when one said it. I should say something, I should say something. Oh no, I said it. So there's the restraint on wrong speech. But there's also the part which is non-expressive. And the inability to say something is wrong speech, right? And that's, that's, the, that's a difficult place too because one doesn't want confrontation, one wants to be harmonious, one, you know, those kinds of attitudes. So the place of, of wrong speech in, in terms of non-expression one has to somehow get a hold of the fear or what is it about me now that can't express that right now, right? 
And if I think if if you make the suggestion to yourself, why can't I say anything beforehand? Right? Rather than I should say something. Like begin 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 with the problem. The problem is I either put my foot in it again, be careful, Viradhamma, or you've got to learn how to say something, right? Those are the kind of two extremes. So let's say if I if I find it difficult to, to say something, then I, I, I kind of prepare myself that, okay, next time that situation comes up, I'm going to try to notice the impulse not to say anything when it's appropriate to say something. I'm just going to try to notice that. That starts to give you more mindfulness around the problem, around your own conditioning, around the relationship there, and your own hesitation and your own fears and so on. And you start to get insight around your own character. And I think if you trust in that... As each of these situations unfolds, you'll you'll learn how to speak rightly, because you'll you'll see you'll see what the root of the problem is, if it's if it's if it's if it's rooted in fear or 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 uh, uh, you know whatever you'll see well that's the problem it's not this particular issue it's that in me which uh, is fearful and you'll be more aware of the fear as you're more aware of the fear of, as an object as an example then it doesn't enslave you so much and a capacity to express comes up. But these are these are these are deep rooted things, but if you keep making the suggestion to not be different, if you make the suggestion you should be different, then you're not really aware. You're just making a demand that you be different. But you sense now there's something off here. This isn't right. This isn't clicking, you know, this isn't appropriate. One of the things that I think we all look at is why do I walk away from a human interpersonal situation and carry it around for two days? What was that about? You know, why, why, why can't I just kind of just like I said what I said and then just get on with my life? So those are good signs. Why is it this thing rifling through my mind for hours and hours and hours? There's something I need to understand about myself, and it's not about me or the other person. It's it's it is it is, but it's also about my way of being in the world. So then I make suggestions to myself. What is it? Where is it in the body? What's the feel? Not as an, an analysis, but as a, as a pro- present moment touching of the very problem. Right? And what is it? where is it? And then, and then insights will come. You, know, you understand yourself. Because you already understand to some extent. You know, you, you know, just the very fact that you're asking the question, you know there's something that needs to be worked at. Now trust in, I would say, I would suggest, trust in awareness to, to, to rather than say, you know, I'm going to say this, this, and that, that never works, right? I'm going to be aware of my feelings at that moment and see if that opens something up. But as long as there is some sense of um, inappropriateness or the, that ricocheting in the mind afterwards, you've got to work with it. You've got to keep coming back to it. Uh, obviously, if it's something that is overwhelming, then you try to get out of it. You just oh, in, in in whatever way, <coughs> yeah. It's all about the exploration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than the demand that you be different, that that's where you can work. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, last night you, um, you answered a written question, uh-huh. which was from me um, about somebody myself who could meditate you know reasonably well for for four years and then for three years just lost it so I'm wondering um, 
the point you made about being willful um, but not compassionate, mm-hmm. like I'm wondering how a person would balance like showing up to sit if that if that feels like it's just willful. So I'm just still trying to. Um, Can we go back? Mm-hmm. What what is it that about your experience that that made you think that meditation was successful? Of calm. And settling. And And then, so what is it about the next three years, which were disastrous? (laughs) (laughs) I think it was maybe 30 minutes out of even, like, out of three years, even doing 10-day retreats. So maybe 30 minutes. And without getting too personal, why the change? Not sure. Not sure. You know, deaths of, like, maybe an overall sense of and so the the was there a kind of dominant mental theme in those times of non-success? Um, irritation with with intrusions of noise, actually. Okay, and were you able to be aware of that as an object of mind, or did you feel like maybe those nanoseconds? Okay. So that's always, the, to me, the key. What is it about this meditative experience where the sense of knowing the object as a condition gets lost into the mind sent outside? So if it is irritation with noise, the noise is a deeper symptom of the very feeling of maybe being maybe irritated or whatever. And to, to be receptive to that, where the mind going out and being caught up with it is the key. That's always the key, right? So the, the, the problem is, is not so much that, for me, not so much that you didn't get what you had before, but it's that you didn't understand what you had then. That's always, that's always the existential problem. This is the way it is now. And, and somehow the, the mind isn't able to be with that, and there's a resistance to that. So that's why, again, I use language like non-resistance, non-becoming. Very useful language. So if I, you know, if I feel heat in the body, like that, and non-resistance. Now that's not a demand, do not resist, right? It's a suggestion of right attitude. It, it's, it's like you're on a bicycle, no, no, you're leaning too much to the right rear demo, that kind of suggestion. But... That's, that's the kind of exploration you have to do with that. So non-becoming. So if you have a memory of peace and calm, right, then that contrasts with the agitation you have. And you, you're double indemnity. <laughs> so you have both becoming and resistance, right? And they're usually together. So you have the memory of the good guys, and now you got the bad guys. And then, but then you put the language, non-resistance, non-becoming, and you're with the way things are. And that's where you need your patience. And trust. That's where trust comes in. And let go of that memory of what it once was. Yeah, yeah. And that memory will come up again, and you'll say, non-becoming. It's just a memory. And the longer you have, you have been a part of that pattern, the more insidious it becomes. You know, this is just the karma. Karma is like gravity. Even, you know, it doesn't stop. <laughs> So any, 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 any habitual 
the con- you know, for me, the law of karma is just the con- the accumulated habits, the consequences of, of of habitual whatever. So, you know, now you're you're here and with this situation, um, try to explore now. What is the problem with this present moment? Is there a real problem? There is no real problem with this present moment. It's a, my my additions to this present moment of what I want and I don't want is the problem. And that's always, that's the hard thing to get about Buddhism, about the Four Noble Truths. Like I, I always talk about my own, the fears I experienced as a, as a public speaker. Man, you know, I just went through hell. And I, you know, in the beginning I thought it was the fear that's the problem. No, it's the fear of the fear, it's the desire not to have the fear. When I saw that, then I began to resolve that habitual conditioning of fear around public situations. So diagnosing what's going on in a, in a, in a kind of existential way, rather than just analytical, abstract way, you know, like, what is the problem? This is the way it is now. What's the suffering? That's the exploration you're involved in. It's not always obvious. It's not always obvious. Others, it's obvious to everyone else. <laughs> right? <laughs> but you're in the soup, right? So you've got the struggle. But stay with it. You know, it's, it's it. Buddhism, it, it pays dividends. <laughs> it's good, good investment. <laughs> yes. Um, just um, some clarification on the way you're using the word becoming, non-becoming. Yeah. So it would be the same as not identifying with. Like, what are you not becoming? For me, that word is the very sense of looking for something. In my meditation, it's like like reaching out, trying to get some experience. It, it, it's not so formulated at, like I'm really looking for. It's just that that non-resting with the present moment, because because what we're doing is we're getting so close to ourselves we disappear, and then that that movement out to try to get something or attain something or realize something or see something becomes more and more subtle. So when I pop that word in non-becoming, it helps me to see this reaching forward into a into a future, into another thing. And it gets more and more subtle, you know. And and the non resistance is the opposite. The the, the non the non allowing of this to be the way it is. The identification happens afterwards. So then the becoming and then the identification and the, it's a kind of a step further for me. Now I'm just looking at more very primal kind of energy, energy to become, energy to get rid of. Before thought. And this is like uh, because th- when, once thought's there, you've already picked up that energy of becoming or resistance. Yeah? Now it's like just before, before that. So the mind is like it's very interesting. It's like you really it gets so close to yourself, you disappear. <laughs> it's very interesting, and that's why the the references to time are important. Present moment awareness is, is supposed to fast and future. Those are all the spiritual life is timeless. It's about the timeless. And time is about uh, chronological time. It's about becoming history and 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 memory and, and so on. And and we we live we live in that kind of chronological time. We move through time. But now we're it's like Tiasilla's intersection of the timeless with time. Man's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. But to apprehend the intersection of the timeless with time. It's the occupation of a saint. No occupation either, but a life lived in love, ardor, 
selflessness and self-surrender. Oh, I remembered it. <laughs> the intersection of the timeless with time, you know. That's, that's the kind of the spiritual mystery. It's the mystery. The body lives in time. Emotions live in time. History lives in time. Yeah? Okay. Where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I would love to hear and understand your thoughts of the hypothesis that the practice can become a tool of symptom manipulation and suppression and um, becoming a substitute um, for actually interacting with the cause and changing it or developing how, how would you define practice? <coughs> Whatever makes me enables me to deal with the symptom without can, can you give me a concrete example? Um, for example, if I have a, a dropping faucet. If you have? A dropping water faucet. A dripping water faucet, yeah. And I don't have the tools to fix it. Uh -huh. I find it agitating. It is very good if I have the practice allowing me to just accept it and focus on whatever else I'm doing. But if I have the tools actually available, but rather than actually dealing with the faucet, uh -huh. just use my ability to um, not be agitated by it and deal with other things, that could be actually um, a bad thing. Okay, so it's a kind of complacency, would you say? Or? <laughs> Anyone speak German? <laughs> Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about your question, but um, I'll give it a go. <laughs> um, Buddhism, for me, is divided into the conventional teachings about the conventions of a person in society, a person with their responsibilities, uh, a moral person, and so on. That's one which we call the conventional truth. And then what I like to think about is the phenomenological way of looking at life. So life as person is I'm a, I'm a monk and I have my duties and responsibilities and I have my precepts and I live in that milieu of social responsibility and so on. And there, if I, if I am asked to do something and I don't do it, then I'm irresponsible if it's my duty. If I, if I go against the conventions of my culture, which we've all agreed upon, then I'm at fault. Right? So that's the social way of thinking about Buddhism. So as a monk, I can't say that I'm the abbot, hence um, I'm going to live my life different than you guys. I have to live as a monk with everyone else. Phenomenologically, I'm looking at my experience as a human being in a different way. I'm looking at the very nature of consciousness, the very nature of the arising and ceasing of emotions and feelings, and so on and so forth. And I'm pondering the Buddha's realization. And the Buddha's realization is that there 
There is peace. There is the island. There is the refuge. There is the unconditioned. There is the uncreated. There is the unoriginated. There is the unborn. There is Nibbana. So the Buddha has a realization. And what he suggests then is that realization is possible if you, if you first of all, live a good and moral life. If you live a responsible life. If you, and as a bhikkhu, if you live by the training rules that we have. So that's my social convention. Then within my social convention, I observe the way things are, and I ponder, well, what, what, was, what was the Buddha's reflection on peace? And what I look at is non-peace, when my mind is not peaceful. What is it? What is it about my mind and my response to the world around the phenomena of sight and sound and emotion and taste and memory and all of that? What is it? It's not peaceful. Where's the conflict? Why does the conflict arise? And so then I pick up the conflict and I contemplate that conflict in light of the Buddhist teachings and I try to see the causes and I try to let go of the causes of conflict and move my heart to the causes of peace. So I don't know if that answered it, but, but complacency, if, if, if you're talking about complacency or repression or whatever, um, that's possible. But remember that Buddhism isn't just a meditative technique. It's a whole lifestyle, especially for monks. Right? So it's a whole lifestyle which I have to live by. And that reflects for me. If I'm, if I'm just like emotionally um, repressed or something like that, other monks are going to call me and say, yeah, you might be a great meditator, but you're a creep. <laughs> really? You know, they're going to they're gonna say, there's something wrong with your meditation, man. You know? So that interaction makes it very real. I might go off to my, you know, I might do a kind of hermit practice and think I'm really together and then come back and see the other monks and think, you know, lots of anger would come up or fear, whatever. So we, in our, in, in my monastic training, we have solitude, but we have community. And that's very, very real and, and very informative. So if there is some misappropriation of practice and technique, which, which creates a kind of screwed up monk... <laughs> Uh, everyone's going to know it. The teacher's going to say, you know, you, you, you're not doing well. You don't look good. <laughs> and the signs would be very obvious. Lack of compassion, lack, you know, unhappy, depressed or whatever. And we'd talk about it. You know, we would look at that, look at that kind of thing. If a person just meditates without any social convention and just go off on their own, that can be very dangerous. You know, people can, you know, they can be like fierce meditators, but not really know that actually they're just maybe repressing or, or just running away from life and so on and so forth. So Buddhism just isn't just uh, a meditation technique. It's a, whole, it's a whole lifestyle. That's very important. So for lay life, it's like good family life or, or vocation and, and commitment responsibility within that. And if you have that interaction, then any, uh, any misappropriation of meditative practices is going to come up. Especially, I think, if you have kids. <laughs> They're gonna, you know, people call your number on that. Yeah. All right, is that helpful? Yeah? Okay. Yes, sir. Um, I'd like to know your point of view regarding children. In terms of, I'm a teacher, and at our school we've noticed, surprisingly this year, an increase in gender problems and race problems which we thought we had passed, but they seem to come back. 
And I think it would be Buddhism and mindfulness, I think would be good to start with the children. But where do you start? What do you lay to start the foundation? I've never really worked with kids, so um, it's, um, I'm, this, uh, I, I've, um, so, if I'm very naive, tell me, <laughs> and I am around some things. Um, I, I don't, what, what, at what age do kids reflect? When does the reflective mind start to function? When can a, when can a child see cause and effect? Okay, so, young. Right. She can reflect. Okay, so, so at some age, the human consciousness can reflect on cause and effect, right? And that's what we work with in Buddhism. The consequences of these kinds of thoughts and activities for the individual create happiness or unhappiness. Now, again, I've never, I've never worked with children, but that's what, certainly what I would try to do. If I, if I could, if a child is being racist and cruel to someone else, I would try to show them what the difference between generosity is, what the effect of generosity is on their mind, uh, and, and try to get them to see how their interpretation of life uh, leads to their own suffering, to their own unhappiness. Um, how I do that, I don't know. You know, I, I, with games or whatever, I don't know. But it seems to me that's, that's what makes Buddhism. It's the reflective capacity. And that's what, makes, that's what makes a human being, actually. You know, just being a biped doesn't mean you're human. <laughs> so, so the capacity to reflect is, first of all, like a moral capacity. To, like a moral person is someone who, who sees themselves in time. Because morality is in time. You can see the consequences of that action led to this result. And, and so an ethical or a moral person is a reflective person. I find it interesting, actually, people who are not strongly reflective uh, from Buddhist cultures often don't understand Buddhism. You know, they know, they know the language of words, but they don't really know how to employ it in that kind of cause and effect way. So some kids, I suppose, I'm just speculating, some kids will have a stronger capacity for, call, you know, for looking at cause and effect. They'll, they'll probably be the easiest. What about the kids who, I'm just thinking aloud now, what about the kids who can't reflect, who are either fearfully driven by, by peer group pressures or, or are just downright nasty or don't, don't have that reflective capacity? I don't know. I, I wouldn't really know how to, how to train them or teach them. Because that's the only thing that works for me. Um, but if someone can't reflect and they're, you know, highly conditioned by peer group pressures and they think they have to go that way, somehow you have to get at their fear. You know, make conscious the fear they have to always be part of the group, cruel group. Um, I'm, I, obviously, I'm not very, very, very good at these kind of considerations. I have been, I have been following a blog by a guy called David Stowe on education, um, and he's a uh, He's a woodworker in Nebraska, or no, somewhere down in the States. And he, he really much emphasizes the intelligence of, 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 of hands, the intelligence of things. And he tries to create uh, workshops with woodwork, and mostly woodwork for kids, for, for high school kids. 
and, 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 and get them to be intelligent with their hands, to understand the world through the hands. And, and, and you can't really bluff a piece of wood. You know, it's got a certain grain, and the saw is going to cut it in a certain way. And he finds that, he, I've just kind of started reading his blog, but he's finding that education, which is, is not grounded in the practical and the real, uh, somehow is really missing the kind of intelligence that maybe kids need, need, need to develop. And so he's, he's saying, like in America, workshops, uh, shop isn't... Like, like you think about it like Western education. When I was in high school, I went to Humberside, and Western Tech was the other school. My parents never go to Western Tech. It's a trade school. You, you know, you should be an academic. I think that's a disaster. Because, you, know, tra- you know, your plumber is very important. You know, if, you know, if your poo gets stuck there. <laughs> and there's intelligence in that. And that intelligence of things speaks back to you. Right? So I, I, I kind of feel if, if, if that kind of education... Can can be incorporated into 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 kids' minds. I think they develop a kind of reflective capacity, an intelligent capacity, and a kind of rewarding. And if 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 kids can do that as a group, there's a kind of sense of cooperation in there. But I've I've never done it, so I'm not sure. But just kind of abstract virtual realities where you don't really have to prove yourself. I think there's something really lost in in education around that way. But the, the, the lady that's smiling, that you have some thoughts on this? You're obviously an educator. Yes, <laughs> well, any thoughts? I, I right, right now I teach kindergarten. Uh-huh. Um, my experience is that children, even four years old, can't learn to meditate. Uh-huh. They can learn to channel the energies in a way that relaxes them. Okay. And uh, when you start to do that, you change the atmosphere negative And specifically, how would you do that? Would give an example. I start very, very um, briefly with the kids um, to take their hands, to bring them very slowly up, very slowly. And I tell them, you don't clap your hands. Once they're up there, I bring them very slowly down. And the whole process takes maybe half a minute. And then you just sit quietly for another half a minute. And you will see the whole atmosphere goes down. Lovely, yeah. Lovely, lovely, And then if something like racism comes up, then in that 
in that atmosphere of receptivity, it's a much more coarse kind of thing, huh? And much well, more. It, it's also because of um, total racism, what I find also to show to me. And parts that we have to differentiate, that also things you can change and the things you cannot change. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you attack somebody on something <coughs> they will never be able to change, it is even more hurtful to something they can. Mm-hmm. If I hurt my t-shirt, I'm going to throw it, not to pull it, I wish so. I cannot throw up my skin, can I? Mm-hmm. Or my eyes, and so on. And um, I think every kid has compassion inside itself. If we give them the real the possible to say, because often they're angry for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is they're showing anger. So often I have to take them aside and help them one by one, or whatever, you know, but uh, to really help them to to understand the background. Mm-hmm. And, um, and refl- everyone's reflective enough to see that. Yeah. yeah. And with all the children and even little ones, I thought, so, you know, what, what is your skin color? It's melanin. It's a scientific thing. And we bring it down to reality, to physics, to what it is. And that the insight remains the same. That your heart is the same, your experience of feeling is the same. Sure. No matter how traveling in Africa or wherever. So, and then they go, oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit of a, so I, it takes a lot of tools to have mm-hmm. to understand. But I believe that um, <laughs> even when you do it, we can work at it. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> if I could just add to that, I found kids, even four-year-olds, take very well to meta practice mm-hmm. because they're able to channel like the love their parents have for them. Yes. And they enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Like Lovely. she said, at first they were resistant, but then they would just come sit and be ready. Uh-huh. Instruction. That's hopeful. Mm-hmm. Very so, hopeful. As a matter of fact, the, the gentleman who asked the question has taught his children to meditate this year. Uh-huh. That's mm-hmm. pretty remarkable. How old are they? Five. Five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. I'm glad you guys are doing out there. It means less work for me in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I can retire. <laughs> Anything else? Really? <laughs> um, in the Nineteenth of June, uh, one of our teachers is coming to visit Tisserina, yeah, Lumpa Liam. Lumpa Liam is the successor to Lumpa Cha. He's the abbot of Wapapong. He's seventy-five. He's been a monk fifty years, and he's coming with Lumpa Jandi, who is my seniority, and Ajahn Seik's son, and, a, and a, another monk, and they'll be visiting. Tisserina on the 21st, of, no, the 21st of June, we're having a do. Uh, so, wear your best frock. <laughs> it's an uh, inauguration of, we want, we want to build a meditation hall. We don't have a big meditation hall, so it's a kind of kickoff for that. It's just an excuse to do something when he's here. So, um, He's an interesting monk. He's, he's much different than Ajahn Chah. He's very accomplished in his own way but much more reserved than Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah was a very charismatic, uh, really 
uh, out there kind of monk. Longpo Liam is much, much more reserved. And uh, people, in the beginning, they didn't really understand who, who he was. And, but now he's, because uh, he's been in the abbot of Wat Bapong now for 25 or more years, he has a large following. If anyone would like to read about him, if you, if you look on our websites, he has a book called No Worries. And in that, there's uh, uh, his biography, and it's stunning. It's really stunning what, you know, what he's done in his meditation practice. So L-I-A-M is his name. Anyway, if you're up in the Perth area, you happen to be up there, please do join us from about 10 o'clock till 3 o'clock. And we'll have some ceremonies, and we have Thai ambassadors, Sri Lankan ambassador, a whole mess of monks. Aya Metanandi will be there, and uh Liam will give a, a, a Dhamma talk. He's here very briefly, then he's going to Boston, then Portland, then to Abai Giri. But for us, it's a great honor. It's, it's a great honor. Um, I've known him for a long time. And it's taken us like three years now. Each year I go there. Would you like to come? He says, well, what do I want to travel for? So me and Ajahn Pasano, we, we asked him, and so finally he, he said he would come. So it's a great honor. Um, yeah, so it, if you're up there, um, unfortunately we don't have enough guest space for everyone who comes. So what could I leave you as a kind of parting present? Um, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> That would be nice. Uh, I think, what is it that, that you know, our kind of love of, of truth and beauty and, and our aspiration, when, when we are conflicted in some way, we have, we, those of us who are meditators, you know, there's something I think quite mature about our sense of responsibility around conflict, isn't there? We, we don't just, we, we might complain, but we don't blame. We have, a, we have a sense of honor about our own inner world. And I've always thought that if I, if I can't be content or at ease with this situation, then I, I need to understand something. And that reflection is, is a kind of awakening rather than a judgment. And certainly one of the, one of the problems of Western meditation is a is a harshly self-judgmental, idealized sense of what you should be. And that's not mindful, that's not reflective, that's, that's simply um, cruel. So we, we, a lot of us suffer from a kind of inner tyranny, an inner demanding uh, of, of what life should be like, but that can be known as an object. So if you begin, like if, if those kind of self-critical uh, modes of mind come up, I, I think uh, and a group like us would be more self-critical than a group that wouldn't be here, by definition, because we are interested in freedom. You know, we don't like anger, we don't like fear, we, want, we, we appreciate the beauty of compassion and silence, whereas other people who aren't really bothered if they punch someone in the nose, they're not going to be here. So maybe by, by definition, our sense of our critical faculty can be quite strong. But the critical faculty to be used well is a faculty which watches cause and effect rather than judges what's going on in a harsh way. And that, that's, that's compassion, isn't it? 
the kind of compassion to first and foremost say, well, this is the way it is now. Which isn't, which isn't a, a fatalism or, or complacency. It's, it's, it's the awakening to the way things are. And I think it's, it, that's obviously, that's the only place I can learn. I can only learn if, if I'm willing to make fully conscious the way things are. And, and full conscious knowing of the way things are uh, opens up insight. You know, that's how insight takes place. Because we give insight an opportunity. We give the new an opportunity. We become available to the new. Whereas our, our tendency to be kind of hypercritical or self-critical or judgmental of ourselves uh, is simply a kind of repetition of history. And we get stuck in the old. Huh? So the fresh, you know, the Zen mind, beginner's mind, that's a kind of common, common line. And, and the freshness of the practice is, is always available. Isn't it? It's always available. No matter how conflicted I am with old habits, I can always, I can always say, well, you're really conflicted, Dave Rodamo. And that's compassion. That's compassion. That kind of awakening. So, if one has faith in the awakened mind, and one trains in that, then right effort becomes quite obvious. It becomes quite obvious. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a becoming, it's just a, a remembering. And that's a good way to look at it, right? You're remembering the moment, you're remembering the way things are, you're remembering that things change, which is not a demand that they be different than they are. And, and I, I, I've been, you know, I'm 68 years old now, so what's gone past is, gonna, is more of what's been than what will be. So I think all of us who are around that age, we start to ponder, so where was I? You know, what's this journey been about? And... Um, and I, and, I, and, I, and I often contemplate, so what, what is it about this life that worked for me? Why has it worked for me? And it has worked for me. I'm very fortunate. And I see that a lot of it is just that I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a lifestyle where very basic principles have been enacted again and again and again and again. Again and again. So just the principle of gratitude. Again and again and again I've been encouraged, bring that up into consciousness. Uh, like, like gratitude's a good example where I'm not an ungrateful person, but gratitude, before I started to, to train the mind to experience gratitude, I would only be grateful when you gave me a cup of tea. Give me a cup of tea, thank you. Grateful, boss, finished. But that was just circumstantial. But then I said, well, actually, you can, you can, I, can, I can bring gratitude to mind and make that a strong and powerful force in my conscious experience. And so start to do that more and more. And, and every morning, think of my teachers, think of my parents, do that for 30 years. What's the result? Very good. <laughs> <laughs> and that result isn't just a retreat, is it? It's a lifestyle. I think of like, like, my, uh, like the contentment with little is one of the principles that a monk has, just to be content with little. And... Uh, not a demand, and this is very important, not a demand. You should be content, Viradamo. The lay people are feeding you, and, and don't you complain. Right? And the people are starving in China. <laughs> that's not content with little, that's, that's coercion. But content with little is, is, a, is a kind of reflection. So I, you know, I, I received my alms food and my robes and so on, and, and sometimes I liked it, sometimes I didn't like it. But the reflection... The contemplation is, remember contentment with little. It's good enough. It'll take you through the day. 
So the, the reflective principles of Buddhism like that, like santuti, reflection on content with little, would be a mirror to my discontent complaining mind. Right? And then I'd see my discontented complaining mind much more, obviously. And I'd obviously the other, the content with little, is a much more wholesome and happy kind of way to go. Do that for 30 years. Right? Rather than the demand you should be content. Um, just like the self-discipline one needs in, in meditative life to, to try to develop a, a good sitting practice or a good lying practice <laughs> or a good standing or a good walking practice uh, every day. Every day. And, and, and you know, I, I really needed a monastery to do that. I don't know how you guys do it. <laughs> I needed a monastery to give me the structure and so on. But, but every day, do an hour of meditation or half an hour of meditation. What's the result for 30 years? Right? And you can see that the spiritual life, when it's based on that kind of, of um, diligence and, and cultivation of the wholesome, then that lays the foundation for the deeper understanding, for the deeper peace of the mind. Yeah? And that's about lifestyle, isn't it? Lifestyle, kalyanamitta, uh, good friends, what you read, what you consume, and so on. And, and, the, and, the, and that reflection is, more, what are the causes of peace? What are, the, what, are the, what are the causes now that I can make for peace in the future? I might, you know, I might be quite upset or, or frightened or so. What can I do right now which would be fruitful? I mean, what would be effective right now? And that we can do. We can always consider that. Whereas the judgmental mind is always just saying, yeah, you, 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 you know, your basket case of your dumb, or you shouldn't be this way, or you shouldn't be that way, and blah, blah, blah. And that does, that's not really effective, is it? It doesn't really, really work. So do look at that. Do look at the difference between being determined and being serious about your practice, because it, again, it pays dividends. It's a good investment. Uh, and just being critical about yourself. That's, 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 you can know that. You can know that critical mind. So if there is some area of your life which is lacking, yeah, change it. Go for it. But not through, not through, not through hatred and that, through, through, through the, the goodness of the heart and compassion. Good, gives good results. And be incredibly patient. Just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. I look at my, my fellow monks, or Lumpur Sumedho, you know, you, you think, well, he's really got it together. And then, <laughs> he fell off the cliff again. And you think, wow, yeah, that's strong karma. And, and that happens. You, 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 think, you, you, know, you think your practice is going really well, and you just can't get your act together. The mind is just like, like, Margot's saying, you know, you keep at it. This is, this is what it feels like to be pathetic. <laughs> you know? And that's the beauty of awareness. That it accepts all things. It accepts all things. And that, that, that the compassion of, of acceptance is this more than just the sentimentality of love. And we, we live in a very sentimental culture, I think. It's like puppy dogs and sweet deer and all that kind of thing. You know, I have deer coming by my window a lot. Very sweet. They also have ticks <laughs> and limes and they eat my trees. So that, that the kind of compassion isn't sentimentality you know, or, or kindness isn't sentimentality. It's, it's like the reality of this world is that there's suffering and there's endless suffering, that there's cruelty, that there's beauty. And it's, it's a much more expansive thing than just I think they're like the loving the word loving kindness in metta 
is a difficult translation. I find goodwill much better. Because loving kindness, who can do that? I mean, I can't do loving kindness all the time. Can you? I don't know. Maybe I'm just basket case here. I can't do, I, but I can do goodwill. Right? And loving kindness. Like loving and kindness all the time to everyone. For the ticks. <laughs> Mosquitoes. <coughs> but I can do goodwill. You know, I can do that. So certainly when, when, uh, when the mosquitoes are coming at me, you know, goodwill is hard practice. Murder is easy. <laughs> but I can, yeah, I, can, I can look at murderous impulse and then goodwill. It all belongs. You know? so, uh, 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 metta is like goodwill to the feelings of destructiveness or cruelty. Goodwill towards that. Then they're not a problem. Then they're not a problem. They arise and cease according to causes and conditions. Morally, ethically, we're responsible. We don't act on those things. We don't hurt others. I just think of these, we were talking about soldiers and PTSD and that kind of stuff that come out of these war zones and so scarred. You know, the horrors that they have to come up in their minds, it all belongs. It all belongs. It's very, very hard to be there. It all belongs. So the, the condition that we have, like some people have very fortunate family conditioning, some have very unfortunate family conditioning. You know, some, some people have parents that were very kind, some people have parents who were abusive, and so on. And that's painful, and so on. And, but that all belongs too, somehow. The results are that they all belong. We don't condone that. And, and you see that, that, that when awareness is combined with that sense of largeness and open-heartedness and compassion, then things can be processed. They can go through us. They can be liberated from the mind. We can be fully conscious of things. And in the full consciousness of these difficulties that come up, they're released. They're released from the mind. They go away from the mind. And we realize the peace of the mind. It's been very nice to be with you. And uh, if you have a chance to visit us in the monastery, please do. I wish you all, all happiness and peace and, and, and success in your spiritual life.